Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for this evening. We give you praise for this community, for those who are joining us here for the first time especially, and we pray, Lord, that you would guide all of us to be able to better hear your voice, better be guided by your Holy Spirit, and to be drawn deeper into relationship with you. And so we pray, Lord, as we open the pages of sacred scripture, that as intimidating or as confusing as this book can sometimes be, that you would illuminate for each one of us the specific message of hope, love, and mercy that you have in store for each of us. Bless us all here in the ways that we most need it, and guide us during our study. And we pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. We are in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the sixth Sunday of Easter. If you need Bibles, they're over here. Restrooms out there. Help yourself to a snack. But we're going to go ahead and dive into this reading. Uh, we're going to read it twice through, as we often do. And first time through, I just want to paint the picture for uh, where we are in the gospel. We're picking up right where we left off from last week. So this is the Last Supper Discourses. Jesus is teaching, speaking to his disciples. It's his very last speech and teaching to his disciples at the Last Supper in the Gospel of John. This spans John 13 through 17. He is just kind of speaking in one long um, teaching. There's a little bit of dialogue, but he is uh, instructing his disciples. This is the final words he wants to leave them with. And you'll hear tonight the promise of what is to come after he dies and is risen. The promise of what is to come, or rather who is to come. And so John 14, we're going to read through verses 15 through 21. This section is entitled, The Advocate. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you always. The spirit of truth, which the world cannot accept because it neither sees nor knows it. But you know it because it remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me because I live and you will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read this a second time, and the second time through, I invite you to listen and follow along to the words specifically. See if any particular word or phrase stands out to you, resonates with you for any particular reason. It does not need to be to interpret the meaning of the text, but see if there's something that just strikes you personally 
What's going on in your life? Where are you in your relationship with the Lord? How is this gospel passage speaking to you directly and specifically? Pay attention to those things and see what stands out. Final time through John 14, starting in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you always. The spirit of truth, which the world cannot accept because it neither sees nor knows it. But you know it because it remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me because I live and you will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you, invite you to reflect back on that passage, John 14, verses 15 to 21, especially the things that stood out to you, any details you found interesting or that sparked a question in you. We're going to take about the next 10 minutes to share at the tables that you're seated at. Uh, you're welcome to join a table if you're at a more sparser table, uh, but we're going to take about the next 10 minutes to do that. Share what stood out to you, why it did, questions that you have. If you're listening uh, or watching this later, please let us know. Otherwise, take the next 10 minutes and then we'll bring it back for the larger group discussion. So I don't know where your uh, discussions are leading and what really resonated with you, but the thing, the thing that really is kind of at least tying everything together for me about this passage is, is the relationship between these two words, obedience and intimacy. And I don't think often we would associate those two words, and especially in today's world and today's culture, we don't like the word obedience, obey, you know, uh, maybe you do, you know, if you're more you know, rooted in the meaning of that and seeing the benefit of it. But often that is kind of taken with a sense of rebellion, like, well, who do I have to obey? Why? Who put them in charge? Like we get this kind of sense of, I do, I have that kind of inherent rebellious tendency within me. And so when people tell me to obey, I often like answer instead of with like acceptance with a lot of questions and resistance. But this passage, what it really communicates, at least to me, is that Obedience leads to intimacy, and intimacy leads to obedience. Because when we obey God's commandments, the word obedience comes from the word obedire, which means to listen. To listen. So obey is not this blind submission to God's will. It's listening to God and recognizing that in any intimate relationship, there are certain things that we abide by, that we obey to keep that relationship healthy, to deepen it, okay? There's no sacrificial relationship or stage you will enter in life where you're progressing in intimacy in a relationship, either as a parent or as a couple or in friendship, that does not require deeper commitment. And that commitment, that ability to listen to the other, to spend time with the other, to sacrifice for the other, to obey kind of the rules and boundaries of that relationship, that will always be connected to deeper intimacy. Two people can't get married and keep their relationship exactly the same as it was when they first met. You know, there are certain rules 
expected vows and promises that come with the territory. And so sometimes we or others might have the mentality that the church has all these rules, that God has all these rules that he wants to impose upon us to, imp- to uh, oppress us. And that is not the case. We grew up, Eric and I grew up in the mountains in Lake Arrowhead. And, you know, if you've ever driven up to the mountains, uh, you'll be very thankful for now that there are guardrails on the side of the mountain as you go up. There didn't used to be. And it used to be a whole lot more fun and adventurous to drive up and down the mountain. But the problem was people who weren't used to those roads and the fog that would come in the winter seasons would drive off the mountain. And there would be a few people every year who would unfortunately do that, many of whom would die because it's a very treacherous road. Life is a very treacherous road if we don't allow God to give us the boundary, the guardrail, to keep us on track. And so the things that God offers us, that the church offers us, the rules that we may call them, that we are asked to obey, what we're really being asked is to listen to the wisdom of God, the truth that God has in store for us and wants to reveal to us so that we will get where we need to go, so that we will go to the destination that he has promised us. That is why we obey. We don't obey obey blindly without question. We don't obey rules that make no sense or that aren't rooted in deep sacrificial love for us. Every single rule or teaching of the church is rooted in deep sacrificial love and truth and goodness and beauty. There is a good reason why the church teaches every single one of its teachings because they come directly from the source of all love, from the mouth of God, who is love. And so to obey is to grow in intimacy. And when we grow in intimacy, we desire to obey, to listen. And any person who's been in any lasting healthy relationship will tell you, you have to at some point learn how to listen in order to keep that relationship healthy. Not always try and fix, not always try and intervene. Sometimes you just need to learn how to listen. And when we do that with others, we grow in intimacy. And so that really is kind of the structure of this reading for me is that God is revealing to you and I what he's asking us to obey. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That word for keep, teresete in Greek means you will do or you will fulfill my commandments. You will do these things I have asked of you. Specifically in the Gospel of John, Jesus asks several things. I can think of three specific commandments that he gives just in this sermon alone. He says, wash each other's feet. As I have done, do also. He says, love one another as I have loved you. And he says, believe in me. Those are the commands in this passage so far alone of the Last Supper discourses. Do we do those things? Are we keeping his commandments? Are we abiding by, allowing our lives to be fueled by service, the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, washing one another's feet, exercising humility? Or do we go through life thinking that we are the star and in the spotlight of the, st- of the story that we are a part of. This world, my life, it's about me. Everything that happens, it's about how it affects me. No, this passage is revealing to us that the story that we are a part of is God's story. And we all have a part to play, a very important role that he's given us and that we're blessed to have. But our life is not about us. It is to keep these commandments, to wash each other's feet, to love others as God has loved us, and to believe in him, to worship him. Do we do those things faithfully? 
coming to Mass every week, a bare minimum for us as Catholics, and on Holy Days of Obligation, do we pray daily? Do we encounter him in the sacraments? Do we serve those in need? Do we offer our time, talent, and treasure to the church and to the, our brothers and sisters in need locally and in the world? Do we abide by those things that God has asked of us? Not because they oppress us, but because they are for our good. They are for our good. Two people who are married, don't, they, they don't stay faithful to each other because it's just the, the not fun rule that the other has imposed upon them. It is for the good of the relationship. It is for our good. And so to obey is to grow in intimacy, and to grow in intimacy is to obey. What Jesus is revealing here, too, is his plan to get as close to us as possible. Think about the whole story of the Bible. It starts with God way up there, creating everything in his omnipotence. God is outside and above humanity. And he creates us and he reveals himself to us and desires to draw near to us, but he is still above and outside us. That was the perception of the Jewish people. God is this big, powerful entity. And yes, he comes down to us, but he's still outside of us. And then he grows a little bit closer. And he comes in the person of Jesus. And now he's no longer outside of us, but he's beside us. And he's revealing to us a, a father who is not distant, but who is Abba, who is here, close, wants to be beside us. And then what Jesus is promising here is that I no longer will just be beside you. In fact, I'm going to go soon. But you will still be able to see me because I live and you will live. Why? Because I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not outside of you or beside you, but inside you. And the Holy Spirit is often a person of the Trinity that we have a hard time wrapping our heads around. You know, we sometimes think of the Trinity as the old guy, the hippie, and the bird. And that's not a good characterization of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but a lot of artwork would say otherwise. You know, the Holy Spirit is very often depicted as just the dove. Because that's how a symbol of the Holy Spirit, how he's described in the Bible, but also, the Holy Spirit doesn't necessarily have a definitive body. He's not necessarily corporeal in the way that God sought to reveal himself as Jesus. The Holy Spirit desires a body, but that body is yours. He wants to animate your body to live within you. And it's easier for us to understand that relationship when the Holy Spirit is kind of this ethereal force or comforter that is sent to us. So God is revealing he wants to be moved from being outside of us to beside us to inside of us. Growing in intimacy. When that intimacy grows, we grow in obedience. And if we want to experience more intimate relationship with Jesus, with God, what do we do? We obey. We obey. We listen. This verse that's here, um, where's this word? But you know it because it remains with you and will be in you. It remains. That word for remain in Greek is mene. It means abide. This word is used elsewhere in the Bible, mostly in John. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me or abides in me, and I in him, in John 6. In John 14, my father's house has many abiding places, dwelling places. We read that last week. And then coming in, in chapter 15, abide in me or remain in me. And then later on, remain in my love or abide in my love. This is what Jesus is promising us, that we will abide with him. 
Just like we have the close of family unity, the closeness of family unity, he wants to be that intimately tied to what we are doing, to everything we do in our life. That's where he wants to be, right there in the center. And then the last thing that I'll share, and then we can open it up, is this word advocate. He's promising to send another advocate. That implies that he is the first advocate, is he not? He is the first advocate. The advocate, or the word for advocate in Greek is parakletos, and it means uh, one who walks alongside or is called to walk alongside. And it is related to a legal term for someone who is called to the aid of a person in a court of law. If someone needs, if someone comes to your defense in a court of law to speak on your behalf and support you, they are a paraclete. They are an advocate for you. That is what Jesus came to do. He came to enter into the cosmic court of law that condemns us to death because of our sin and say, no, this person does not deserve to die. I do in their place. He has already done that. And what he wants to do is to send another advocate, one who will be with us always and not just beside us, but living inside of us, so intimately tied to all we are and all that we do, the Holy Spirit to animate us and to continue to remind us of this, that when we are loved and when we love someone, we will their good, as Thomas Aquinas says, to love is to will the good of the other. So the Holy Spirit's job is to dwell inside of us and remind us that God is for us. And brothers and sisters, that is something that I think so few people unfortunately believe. Unfortunately, so few people believe that today, that God is for you. We sometimes have this belief that like God is, is kind of waiting to trip us up. You know, like, God, are you, are you really, if I, if I obey you, you're really going to have everything under control? Because I feel like if I do something wrong, you're going to ruin everything in my life. We kind of almost sometimes walk on eggshells because we feel guilty or we don't believe wholeheartedly that we can trust God. We still maybe are, are devolving to this childlike state of punishment and consequences. God is for you. And I need you to hear that because I think some of you here tonight really need to be reminded of that. God is for you. He is cheering you on. He wants better things for you than you even know to ask for yourself. And guess what? He already has them in store. He is already working for that good in your life. How do we experience the joy of that intimacy with him? We obey. We listen. Because when we listen to his will, his will will happen in our life. And we'll experience the goodness that he has promised us. We'll experience him advocating for us every single day, reminding us that he is for us even when we do not believe it. He is for us even when we are not for ourselves. He is for us and for you always. That, for me, is the real message of this passage. That from the beginning of time, God wanted to be so close to us that we would never forget that he is with us, that he desires to be growing constantly in intimacy with us, and that he is always for us, no matter what. No matter what. Are there questions about this passage? Other things that stood out to you? Yeah. Yes, sorry if I didn't make that clear. The advocate is the Holy Spirit. Later on in John 16, he will make that more clear. Um, and then that becomes clear later after he dies and he sends the Holy Spirit. But yes, yeah. And so if you've ever prayed the divine praises during adoration, exposition of adoration, blessed be God, 
blessed be uh, his holy name, blessed be Jesus, true God and true man, you know, these lists of things. There's one, uh, blessed be uh, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. And sometimes people ask, what does that mean? It's the Greek word for advocate. So it's sometimes translated as advocate or comforter is another way it's translated. Yeah. When you talked about the Holy Spirit, uh, it really stood out to me when you said that it, it lives within us. Mm-hmm. Um, does it live in the union with the soul as well, too? The soul and the Holy Spirit kind of in one in the body? or Ideally, because we can sever our relationship with God. And so we can remove our union with God or damage our union with God by virtue of our sin. So like the fully integrated person, if they are fully obedient to God, yes, like there's complete cooperation and unity within them between the Holy Spirit, the soul, body, all of that. Like the Holy Spirit is fully connected to us. We're fully connected to God. But when we sin, especially when we commit a mortal sin, we, uh, the church teaches, we sever our relationship with God. And so there is disorder there. There is disunity. So it's as if our bodies, we're creating the image and likeness of God, right? And he is a trinity. Our bodies are always craving trinitarian unity. We always want to be perfectly united to God as he's perfectly united to himself. The thing that messes that up is sin. So in one sense, yes, because our soul has this kind of eternal uh, uh, lifespan to it and is connected to God and is made for unity with God. But when we sin, we sever that unity. So it's kind of a both-and answer, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, Marco. You just, you just said it severs unity, but it doesn't change the fact that he loves us no matter what. Correct. Okay. Yes. I've often said um, you don't have to change in order for God to love you, but God's love will change you. You don't have to change in order for God to love you, but, but God's love will change you. So no matter what we do, Just like any parent who really authentically loves their child, no matter what that child does, that parent is going to love them. But when they experience and really get know fully the love that their parent has for them, it causes some sometimes some sense of guilt or remorse. Or I need to I need to recognize like I've done something wrong. I've disobeyed my parents. I've disrespected them. But the love that the parent has for the child is not dependent on whether or not the child recognizes that. You know, and there may be some of you here who have children or grandchildren, nieces, nephews, brothers, sisters who've left the church. And that's a, a real important lens through which to see those relationships. Like, are our conversations with them, is our attitude toward them colored by God's love for them? Because a lot of times we want to just kind of keep planting those seeds, and sometimes it's a little more forceful than we care to admit. But we want to keep trying to invite them back because we have that heart for them. We want their good. We want them to see all the good that God has in store for them. First and foremost, they have to understand and experience God's love for them. And sometimes that's all they need. And maybe someone else will come along and plant the next seed and plant the next seed. And that's a very hard thing to let go of, that our closest relationships, our spouses, our children, our best friends, they're not ours, they're God's. He has them. And so the best we can do is extend God's love to them when he places us in their path. But we also have to admit we can do damage as well. And so we have to be sensitive to that. But you're absolutely right. Our sin does not disqualify us from God's love. But it can prevent us from experiencing it or, or recognizing that love. Yeah. I was kind of confused by the fact that it seemed like he loved it as like a mysterious moment in time. 
So I assume he was talking about the resurrection, but it could have been like the ascension, the second coming. Maybe oh, he says on that day. Where he says on that day. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. When will everyone know that he's in the Father? I assume at the resurrection. I think what I what I would assume based on the context of the passage is that when the advocate comes to be with us always, because that's what he just mentions. He says, I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate. And then if you just dot, 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 verse 20 on that day. So that day that he gives the advocate. So I would I would assume he's talking about Pentecost, because only then when we're swept up in the presence of God and the Holy Spirit is in us, do we have a greater ability to understand the Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is in us, and we are in Jesus, and in the Father, and there's this whole unity there, because the Trinitarian revelation is kind of incomplete. You know, God is outside us, beside us, and inside us, and we're kind of getting swept up into the unity of God. Um, and so then we have the ability to see more clearly. That, that, would, that would be my guess. But it could also be, he could also say it that way to kind of be mysterious, you know, like, whenever that day is for you, because we all kind of have our own personal Pentecost, too, the day you're confirmed, or the day you experience that baptism of the Holy Spirit, whatever it might be. So, another both, another both answer. Yes? Uh, I was just curious about the verse where he talks about whoever uh, whoever has my commandments and observes them. Uh, what, is, what is he referring to there specifically? Like, what kind of actions? Well, yeah, as I mentioned before, there's three specific commands that he gives in this overall passage. Wash each other's feet, love one another as I have loved you, believe in me. Um, but there are elsewhere in the Gospels other things that Jesus commands, um, like take up your cross and follow me. Um, leave behind your possessions, you know, because you cannot serve both God and mammon, or just at least do not be attached to them. Um, for love of money is a root of all evil. I don't think Jesus says that. That's elsewhere in Scripture. But, you know, like those types of things are the things that Jesus often commands or asks so they really get to the heart of the commands of the Old Testament. There's not really anything that Jesus commands that's not tied to some kind of command of the Old Testament. He's just deepening our understanding of it and highlighting like what's at the core of that message of God, that what he was trying to do when he chose the Hebrew people and to set them apart, the core of what he was asking of them, Jesus kind of allows those things to rise to the surface, and he specifically declares them, all of which I think are wrapped up in, you know, the, the, the golden rule or the, the greatest commandments, you know, treat others as you would like them to, as you want to be treated or love God and love your neighbor as I have loved you. So they all are kind of encompassed in that. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to get your take on uh, verse 19, because we were talking about at the table where it says, in a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. To me, that kind of sounds like talking about sin and death and also mm -hmm. the, the sin, like, to be salvation, where um, you're talking about kind of when this was written mm -hmm. up until the days which we live in now, mm -hmm. um, how evil is around every corner in the day we live in now. It's every, everything you look, everything you read just seems to be a whole bunch of evil all mm -hmm. over the place, and there's a lot of people who are lost faith and falling away from God, mm -hmm. and then those of us out there that, that still believe are the, the ones that would be saved. Yeah, um, so salvation is tied to baptism in Catholicism. Uh, I think we talked about that a few weeks ago. That um, it says in the Catechism, God bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, but he is not bound by his sacraments. And so 
the ordinary means by which we are saved is the expression of faith in God through the sacrament of baptism. And so there is life and death imagery here, and that those who are connected to Jesus, those who have, I imagine at this point, all of the disciples have been baptized, at least in the baptism of John. Um, and so they, they at least maybe have the inferred ability to see that kind of new life. They've set aside the old self. They're following Jesus. They're being faithful to him. Um, his statement about the world will no longer see me is in reference to his death. But there is meant to be for the disciples this hope that continues on, this connection to Jesus, this connection to God, because maybe they've experienced the baptism of John. They've experienced repentance of their sins. They're trying to live in a new way. And if we echo that, especially now that we live in a sacramental faith, and we have sacramental baptism, that would also be extended to us, that we can still see Jesus even though he's no longer walking here on earth in corporeal form as a human. He still retains his human nature, but he's in heaven with God. And the, the way in which we are intended to encounter God is through the Holy Spirit in this age, which is interesting, right? Because we, like I said before, the Holy Spirit is kind of that untapped person of the Trinity for many of us. And you may, you may see it characterized as charismatic Christians, or that's a Pentecostal thing, right? But like the Holy Spirit is the ordinary means by which we are meant to encounter God at this time. At this time. Yes, Jesus intended for us to celebrate the Eucharist and to encounter him there in body, blood, soul, and divinity. But you see how he reveals himself sort of in these stages. And when he reveals one part of himself, God the Father, he allows then that part of him to kind of I don't like saying take a back seat, but kind of not be in the forefront so then that God the Son can shine forth. But there's still perfect unity and relationship there. And then the same thing happens when he sends the Holy Spirit. Jesus ascends into heaven to kind of take a little bit of a back seat so that the Holy Spirit can take the wheel. So it's then implied that the church should primarily be in relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. And yet that is the least often probably prayed to person of the Holy Trinity for most Catholics, I would assume in my experience. And that's an incredible opportunity of growth. If you find yourself in that category, it's not to shame you or be like, oh, shame, shame, you don't know, you know, like you, but it's a really invitation for us because the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit comes the promise of gifts and charisms and fruitfulness and all of this life in God that we are missing out on. This joy, this animation to our life, this sense of spiritual adventure I have to tell you, my so today's my wife's birthday, by the way. Happy birthday. Um, so sorry to embarrass you. Uh, I'll embarrass you too. It's also my uh, in-law's anniversary. Um, so yes. Uh, anyways, last night, um, I, uh, I, I've been wanting to watch this movie for so long because it's one of my all-time top five favorite movies. And we finally started watching it. Hook. Has anyone seen this movie? Hook is like one of the best movies ever made, I think. It's so great. It's so great. And Erica has never seen it, so we were watching it last night. We didn't finish it, but I could feel as I was watching it, like this sense of like nostalgic, childlike wonder and adventure kind of welling up in me. And part of it, because this was a movie from my childhood, but it's a, if you don't know, it's a movie about Peter Pan, but it's a, a kind of a, a, a chapter two kind of take on the story of Peter Pan. So it's not the, the actual movie Peter Pan from what we know in Disney. It's kind of what happens after. Uh, it's a really, really... An interesting movie, but I was I was reflecting on um, the clock. Captain Hook hates clocks, and he's always smashing these clocks. It's like, well, he hates the clock because the, the crocodile swallowed the clock, right? And so when he hears ticking, he's afraid of the crocodile. But I realized last night that he's smashing the clocks because he's afraid of time. That all the adults are the pirates. 
And they're so angry because they hate the youth of Peter Pan and the Lost Boys because they're so afraid of death. And they take themselves in their adulthood so seriously that they want to squander out all youth and playfulness from the world. And that's why he keeps destroying these clocks. Because he doesn't like that sense of adventure and wonder. That when we can let go of the sense of time and rushing and taking ourselves so seriously, we can fall back into that playfulness of youth. And that's really what the Holy Spirit is. It's this youthful, childlike, spiritual wonder and adventure that awaits all of us. And I think it's apparent that so many Catholics don't have a relationship with the Holy Spirit because we're characterized often as this kind of grumpy, guilty group of people. And that's probably because we're lacking in the Holy Spirit. Because if we all had the Holy Spirit, those would be the last two words that people would describe us as. And so... For your spiritual homework, go watch the movie Hook. No, I'm just kidding. But like, think about your relationship with the Holy Spirit, and then maybe watch it. It's a great one. Anyways, there was a question over here. I, I almost feel bad for saying this because I feel like I'm pushing back on you. Sure. No, go for it. Wouldn't we say, though, that our devotion to the Holy Spirit is very much implicit in the sense that he actually directs our, you know, um, the Spirit makes intercession within us with groanings that we cannot understand. Yes, yeah. I'm not saying it's not necessary to have a relationship with him, but it seems that, you know, or it's kind of like the, the classic evangelical, you know, you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. I receive his body, blood, soul, divinity, like every day. Mm -hmm. I might not call it a personal relationship with Jesus, but even a, you know, like a Polish farmer in the Middle Ages would have a much closer relationship with Jesus than someone who has a conversation with them, mm -hmm. provided that they were living like the sacramental life of the Jesus. Yes, yeah. I guess what I would say to that is, because is, I think, again, it might be a both. Yes, I think it is, how yeah. Do we, how do we balance that? Because part of me is like almost like lax about that, where it's like, mm -hmm. well, and, and it's not a laxness out of irreverence. It's like, I do believe the Holy Spirit prays in me. Mm -hmm. But it's not like a something that I'm grasping with the mm -hmm. intellect and perceiving and holding on to as something that's, I guess, essential for my spiritual life. Yeah. At least the, the intellectual side of it. Yeah. It seems to be more of an intuitive... And I don't know if there's even a question. <laughs> no, I see what you're saying. And you're absolutely right. Like the catechism does say the only reason that we desire to pray is because the Holy Spirit has first been at work in us, sparking that desire. And so there is this inherent relationship we have with the Holy Spirit by virtue of the sacraments, by virtue, virtue of being beings who are created by God, who animates us with his Holy Spirit. And so I guess what I would say to that is you're correct in that sense. But also, there is this invitation there. So the image I'm getting is like the image of a parent and a child. And specifically, as you were talking, I was getting the image of like a mother breastfeeding her child. Because that's a real image of like Jesus nourishing us in the Eucharist just as a mother is nourishing her child. But in the same sense, when that child grows up in that relationship, the relationship between the child and the parent can still deepen through personal relationship. But it doesn't change the fact that that parent nourished that child into being and continues to nourish the child in other ways. Yeah. So it's a both, you know, that, that yes, it's inherent, and there's always that part that's going to sustain us, but there can be something that's missing if we are too lax in our response, if we aren't seeking a deepening of our awareness of that. And yes, you sustain me, God, 
But what does that do then? How does that drive me back into deeper relationship with you? Because then, you know, in a sense, like if, if, if we did that as children and then grow into teenagers, we, sit, we kind of become spiritual freeloaders. Like, yeah, you're just going to provide for me, mom and dad. So that's, that's pretty sweet, you know. But like if we don't grow in that intimacy and awareness of them and appreciation of them, deeper relationship with them, then we're missing out on a deeper kind of calling that is being presented to us. So you're absolutely right. I think it's a, it's a both and that it's inherent. It's always there. It's very intimate. Whether we realize it or not, it's more intimate than we can possibly know, and yet it can be even more once we know it and respond to it. Could you give one practical suggestion if someone was like, how do I grow in a relationship with the Holy Spirit? Like one thing to start doing. Ask. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple. Like the daily... The daily, not just saying the words, come Holy Spirit, but the daily act of like surrendering the will. Because the Holy Spirit wants to animate us. And we are very consumed every day in animating ourselves and our own desires. And so um, I would say ask, and maybe to give a second one, allow yourself to be more playful. And you can take that however you want, in prayer, in life, in your sense of adventure, your presence, you know, in, in, in where you are. In fact, I was just having a conversation with someone who, uh, who just went on a, on a big trip, study abroad type of thing. And they were coming back and you get that sense already of like, oh, I want to go somewhere else. You know, there's so much of the world to see. And you kind of get in this kind of smuggish sense of like, I've been, I've been across the globe. And this person wasn't doing this, but like you can fall into that trap. And, and they were like, well, what do I do about that? You know, what do I do? Like I, I had this sense of wonder over there. And I remember, you know, the first time I traveled, when I came back home, I recognized how much Lake Arrowhead, where I grew up, looked like a European village. And I had never realized it before. And it gave me this sense of wonder and appreciation to where I was. And so what I told them was, what traveling does, if we're benefit or if we're given the blessing and opportunity to do it, is it gives us a sense of wonder that we can take back home so that you can travel where you live. So I was sitting with him at a Starbucks and I was like, just imagine you and I right now, we're in Latvia at a cafe. What would you do differently about your day? Because when you travel, you have the sense of like, who am I going to meet? Where am I going to explore? Where am I going to go? What if we had that sense of childlike wonder every day where we are? Because we're primarily called to travel at home most of our life. That's where we're called to be. And all of this is that kind of joyful sense of adventure that the Holy Spirit promises us. So kind of having that mentality. Yes, ask, but that playful mentality of like, how am I called to just be more aware and present in a more adventurous way? bringing my relationship with Jesus to all those places. And the Holy Spirit, I think, will show up in surprising ways. Yeah? Yeah, I've always uh, advocated to maintain that childlike creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think that like, over time, we really lose what we want to do or like what like our ambition. Like as mm -hmm. you get older, your ambition declines, right? But yeah. Do you think that trying to maintain that childlike creativity and ingenuity, will that help you become more virtuous? Will that get you a closer relationship? Yeah, that's what Jesus himself says, is that if you want to receive, the, if you want to enter the kingdom, be like these least of these, like enter the kingdom like a child. There's this, this amazing quote that, that I, I don't know who said it, but ever since I read it, I can't like forget it. And, and it goes something to the effect of um, when God created us, he revealed to us all the mysteries, wonders, and beauties of the universe. 
And then we were born and we began to forget. And I think about that all the time. You know, because children, they have that sense of wonder and mystery and fascination with things. And then the older we get, the more we get into being like the pirates in Peter Pan. We take ourselves so seriously. We want to become adults. We want to become professional. We want to become mature. It's an insult to call someone immature. I wish more of us were immature. Like, come on, like, that's like, you know, in a good way, you know, not in any responsible way, but just animated by the Holy Spirit. The wonder we could have, the playfulness we could have, that's what's appealing to people. I don't know a story of a single saint where the people around them were like, you know what really I love about that saint? They're so stoic and professional. Ew, no, no one has ever said that about a saint. And those things aren't bad. It's good to be professional. It's good to have stoic qualities and virtues in terms of classical stoicism and things like that. But like the saints were all of these beautifully adventurous and playful souls who had the sense of childlike wonder. And we lose that. And the gift that we have in the Holy Spirit is that's always available to us, always. And so in those moments where we feel like spiritually dried up, like we, we are, are so tired spiritually or just in life. Like that is the, whole, the, the, the cure to that is the Holy Spirit. Yes? I've heard that we can consider the Holy Spirit the feminine side of the Trinity. Uh, not true. That is an area of theological speculation that is kind of dangerous because what it does is it disregards the idea that God is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Uh, in John 16, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he says, he will come to you. And he uses only the pronoun he to describe the Holy Spirit. And so because the Holy Spirit is non-corporeal, certain people who want to enter gender politics into theological speculation have tried to be more edgy, I guess you could say, by saying that the Spirit is she. And that's a beautiful sentiment, but we already have the glory of the example of the Virgin Mary and the glory of the church and our image as the Bride of Christ. And when you dampen that or, or make it imbalanced because you're trying to be more relevant or edgy in the wrong way, it creates theological problems. So um, God is revealed, even though God, God is without gender. God is not a man or a woman. He's not corporeal. Um, God in himself. He revealed himself in time as father, as a male son, and as a spirit who's referred to as he because there is that spousal relationship he desires with us. That he is the bridegroom and we are the bride of Christ. We are the church. And there's beauty in knowing that. We can complicate it in a lot of different ways. However, there is maternal imagery used for God in the gospel of Isaiah, or the gospel, the prophet Isaiah, where um, God is depicted as a mother nursing their child Israel. So there is maternal image for God in the Old Testament. But we have to pay attention specifically to the revelation that Jesus gives us about who God is. And anytime he does that, he uses the, the pronoun he for a particular purpose. It's not to glorify masculinity or make it higher than femininity. In fact, if you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you'll see that femininity is the highest crown of creation because women can bring forth life. They're the last being created, and everything gets evolutionarily more complex and more beautiful and more complete. And so the church's theology around women is really beautiful. There's a really beautiful encyclical on the dignity of women that Pope John Paul II wrote, um, Dignitatis Mulieris, I think is what it's called, on the dignity of motherhood or of women. I might be mistaking the title, but it's a really, really good document to explore that whole idea and the complementarity between masculinity and femininity, both on the human level and how that corresponds to, to God. So, but yeah, it's a great question because that stuff is out there.
Oh, the Sisters of St. Joseph of Orange? Yeah. <laughs> They're great. They're very, very great. Yeah, you don't have to name them. <laughs> you're all great if you're watching this. Yes. <laughs> well, he doesn't have a body. Yeah, God is supreme being. You never really comprehend that. Again, it's me being, uh, me being uh, something attainable. <laughs> oh, you want tangible? Tangible, yeah. Well, that's the beauty of Jesus, right? God makes himself tangible, right. right? So he makes himself into a body, and Jesus still retains his human nature. And so if you desire to see God in a body, look no further than the face of Jesus. But God, in his essence, in terms of the being who God is, he isn't a body. He is kind of the act of being itself. Uh, it's something that often Bishop Barron says uh, when he reveals his name, I am who am in Exodus chapter three. He's basically saying the translation of that, I am the, the act of to be. I am existence. Not in a pantheistic way, but in the sense that God wills all things into being and as such is not bound to a body because he is in all places and in all things in that way. So, um, yeah, but if you're looking for God in a body, you got Jesus. So, yeah. Yes. Last thing. Does the Holy Spirit have a sense of humor? Oh, yeah. God does. Yeah. Psalm 2, I think, says God sits on his throne and, and laughs. Um, you know, so I think absolutely. God, I mean, God made us. So, of course, he does. You know, like, you know, and our bodies and our personalities are weird and, you know, and just strange, you know. So, like, we do weird things. Absolutely. 100%. Just like... Like our children are the most like they're the they're the freest source of entertainment in our life. Like they make us laugh endlessly, and I, so I can't imagine what a like loved doofus I look like to God on a daily basis. Like He just loves me so much, and yet I am just probably like a constant source of entertainment for Him because of the weird stuff that I do. So absolutely, He absolutely does. So if our God is dry, you know, again, and we're embodying that. If our God is dry, serious overly judgmental, overly critical, never smiling. You know, there's so much artwork of God depicting God, Jesus as like not joyful, not smiling, you know, and I just, that bothers me. I, I get that it's trying to communicate a sense of reverence and holiness, but I think you can have both. I think you can have both. I communicated once as the last thing, and we'll pray. I was talking once about the fact that I, I, I hated that there were so many images where Jesus wasn't laughing. And Faye, who's not here, who's wonderful, um, she, she drew for me a picture of Jesus at the Last Supper where he's laughing. Because I love this image of like Jesus stuffing his face and laughing with food in his mouth and being very human and messy. Uh, and I don't think we get that. And so it's hanging in my office. And I just, I look at it all the time. And I like, that's my Jesus. Like, that's human Jesus. Yes, Jesus was divine. We're really good at recognizing him that way. We're really bad at recognizing him as a human. And when we do, we overly divinize his humanity and we forget about all the messiness of humanity, the things that make it fun and weird and gross and like all of that. And he was all those things, just not in a sinful way, not in a distorted way, like the perfection of all of that. And so having that joyful intoxication of the spirit, as scripture calls it, is a lens through which we can live life so that we can experience that same joy, that same humor, that same animation of God that he's promising us. And yet we're, we're the only ones getting in the way of us experiencing that. So I invite you to consider that this week. 
And if that's something you want to explore, remember, intimacy leads to obedience, and obedience leads to intimacy. So follow him, listen to him, and he will lead you to a better understanding of how to be in relationship with him. Ask for the Holy Spirit, and he will come to you, especially if you've been baptized, and especially if you've been, been confirmed. You already have the Holy Spirit within you. We just need to be trained in how to access him and allow him to fill us. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this time. Thank you for giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the excitement, the curiosity, the zeal, the openness to your Holy Spirit here in this place, Lord. And so by virtue of our confirmation, those of us here who've been baptized and confirmed, the authority that you gave us through those sacraments, I pray, Lord, that you would call down your Holy Spirit upon all of us in this moment. You would fill us, animate us with the joy and the zeal of, of a relationship with you, of your very life dwelling in us, because you are for us. Help us to go through life this week with a sense of adventure, a sense of wonder, a sense that we're traveling in a new place, simply going through our daily routine, seeing maybe some of the same people, but having this childlike curiosity and openness to how you will show up and surprise us with your love each day. Bless us each in the ways that we most need it, and help us to carry these words with us each day as we prepare to hear them proclaimed once again this Sunday. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.